This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, I'm Grace Ho, Opinion Editor for The Straits Times. You're listening to In Your Opinion, a new podcast series by The Straits Times that takes a hard look at political and social issues of the day. In this first episode, we are going to look at the sentiments of pro-China Singaporeans, especially against the backdrop of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Helping me make sense of this small but increasingly vocal group of Singaporeans, as well as all the narratives surrounding this conflict, is political science associate professor Ian Chong from the National University of Singapore. Welcome, Prof Chong. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. For the listeners of this new podcast, just a bit of background here. A recent Blackboard research poll in March showed that 95% of more than 1,700 Singaporeans interviewed support Ukraine in the ongoing war with Russia, and 6 in 10 agree with Singapore's decision to slap sanctions on Moscow. So, Prof, we know Singapore's a small state. It's made its position very clear to denounce Russia's actions. But voices from Singapore and social media platforms can seem very different. Right. So the... Motivations, I think, are quite varied for why people take the positions that they do. For some who believe that Singapore needs to stay neutral, I believe it comes from a place where some people in Singapore tend to feel quite vulnerable. We are fed this vulnerability narrative quite a bit, right? So the belief is, okay, so if we're small, we don't have that much capability, what we should do is to stay away from trouble and seemingly offending a larger, more powerful country going against what they wish could potentially be getting us in trouble. So the best is to keep quiet, say nothing, stand back, right? So I think that explains some of that positioning. Others have a lot of unhappiness uh, towards the, the US, right? They think that the US is highly hypocritical, that it invaded Iraq in 2003, created a lot of uh, destruction, really wasn't a call to task for it. And so when they see uh, some actor that has been supported by the US, uh, Ukraine in this case, getting invaded, they think, well, this is, you know, just deserts, right? And it's, of course, um, what's happening in Ukraine is terrible, clearly, especially with the war crimes. But because it's far away from Singapore, people have that distance, they, they can sort of disassociate. And of course, there are still other Singaporeans who I think are quite taken by the uh, PRC line. They may be quite sympathetic to it and believe, look, um, you know, China is important to them. They feel a lot of affinity towards it and are quite willing to support those positions that the PRC has put out. So I think it's really difficult to say that there is one Western view or Asian view or even ASEAN view, right? ASEAN, I think, uh, on this particular issue has quite mixed positions among its members. But at any rate, I think if we think about Russia, just just Russia, right, a big proportion of the population is in the sort of European part of Russia. They share many cultural markers, um, religious similarities as people who are living in Europe. So are they European? Are they Western? You know, it's not entirely clear. And even if you take the West, so to speak, we can disaggregate that a little bit. The US and Europe are they completely the same? Are they subsumable into each other? That's not entirely clear, right? If you look at the invasion of Iraq in 2003, in the lead-up, the French and the Germans were vehemently against the US and UK position, saying that the uh, Saddam Hussein regime had weapons of mass destruction, and they had a big falling out over it, right? So I don't think that's particularly representative of so-called Western unity. I don't think we can say that India 
uh, is the same as China, is the same as Indonesia. Clearly, they're very different places with different concerns and different interests. So um, this claim about, well, Singapore is taking too much of a Western view. I mean, I don't know. I think our interests are quite varied and we depart from our ASEAN neighbors for clear reasons. We, our, the structure of our economy is different. The structure of our societies are different. So we have different concerns, and that's uh, completely understandable. I mean, if you think about Singapore, right, um, our merchandise trade, a lot of that is with uh, China. But you know what? More than our neighbors, we trade in services too. And our trade in services is much heavier with Europe, with Japan, uh, with the US. And we look at the... Um, stock of foreign investment FDI. The US is by far the largest investor in Singapore. So these sorts of concerns, I think, make our considerations slightly different from uh, those of our neighbors who perhaps may trade more with commodities or are linked in the supply, the global supply chain with uh, different entities in a different way. So these have to be our considerations. And given the big finance sector in Singapore, I also won't rule out the possibility that among the considerations are whether secondary sanctions will affect us, right? So you have to open these things up rather than to use easy labels. And, you know, this, I think, in Singapore, one of the things that tends to happen is there is a claim conservatism, right? And the West, quote-unquote, gets stuck with this supposed liberalism that is somehow bad or nefarious or dangerous. And, you know, it's... a uh, it's tied sometimes with the U.S. The U.S. gets to represent everything. But, you know, even when you think about the U.S., they have a strong religiously motivated social conservative movement. But you have a place like Taiwan that, you know, is really up there with, you know, gender equality, having rights for LGBTQ groups. So, you know, what is West, what is Asian, I think is a lot more varied and mixed. So you look at uh, the PRC, for instance, uh, they have a 2013 Treaty of uh, Friendship and Cooperation with Ukraine that talks about how they will support Ukraine's territorial integrity. Well, how's that playing out now? Right. And you know, you mentioned how the, the reality is a lot more varied and mixed and nuanced. But then you have all these boxed narratives in social media. I mean, how much of this do you think is misinformation, right? Or, or, or disinformation, maybe, you know, by the pro-China and pro-Russia camps? So I think once we get into situations of political crises, there is going to be a lot of box information. Much of this, uh, I think, is disinformation. Some of it is misinformation. So when I say disinformation, it's uh, state, in this case, uh, state or, it can be other agents too, but in this case, it's, the, it's states, uh, trying to push forward their narrative uh, by way of using sometimes falsehoods, sometimes taking true information, putting it out of context, or trying to uh, distort certain interpretations, that happens quite a bit. This distortion by states is something that is more common with uh, authoritarian settings. The reason being in other systems where it's more open and more competitive, the, the state doesn't have that much power. It cannot dictate to press outlets what they, want, uh, what they should say or shouldn't say. I mean, there will be an attempt to do so, but why you see a lot of digging up of you know things that states are doing that people will question is because there's the independence of the press, that the control is just not there in, in settings like the US or, or Europe. So I can give you I can give you a couple of examples that have come up uh, quite recently. Now 
one of them has been, I think people have seen this sort of, it's come across firstly in private messaging apps like WhatsApp, right? Where they talk about how Ukraine is this promiscuous woman who, you know, has lots of relationships, but ends up in the wrong kind of relationship. So Ukraine gets beaten up. There's the obvious problem of slut shaming. There's the obvious problem of uh, suggesting that intimate partner violence is okay. Uh, they're clearly not. But uh, th- these sorts of narratives, they seem to come from uh, places like, uh, seem to come from WeChat. They seem to come from, originate from the PRC, right? There was a media personality from Hong Kong, a pro Beijing media personality, who was pushing this message out quite a bit. Um, she was criticized for, for the sort of slut shaming and the, and the intimate partner violence stuff. But uh, so we know that the origins seem to be coming from China. And interestingly, this gets picked up by private messaging in Singapore. This gets picked up even by official channels in Singapore, which I, I actually found quite curious. Uh, so you can trace you can trace some of this. And then you also have this other uh, set of messaging that had been that's more a little bit more recent, talking about how Russia had sent a warning to Singapore for us uh, slapping sanctions on them. And that messaging, you know, supposedly made the round. So I, I tried to check, right? I looked up the Russian embassies in Singapore's uh, website. I looked at their Facebook. I looked at their Twitter account. I looked at the Russian foreign ministry. So I, it's, there's no basis for that, but yet this gets spread around. They're, they're not really clear, but they, it's sort of a gut feeling and they start sharing things and then it gets viral. Other people will share. That sort of non-purposeful attempt to sort of share perhaps information that's out of context or or, or false, that's more misinformation. That happens as well. But I think uh, the examples I raised earlier where it seems to have some sort of parallel with uh, state action, I think we can you know, more reasonably suspect uh, some sort of disinformation. But the point about disinformation is that there's a lot of effort to obscure. So it's really hard to track down exactly what is going on. So there are some efforts to try to analyze this uh, in a more systematic and technical way. So DoubleThink Labs in Taiwan has been trying to do this with the uh, media messaging towards Taiwan because clearly they get a lot of this. Now, I haven't seen a similar effort uh, in Singapore, but it's something that we can conceivably do. I think with those kinds of things, we can have a better fix right, on what is going on. And if that information is made public, then that public education aspect, I think, can help people guard against you know, being misled. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Back to my conversation with my guest, political science associate professor Ian Chong from the National University of Singapore. Right. Now, Prof, moving from you know the global theatre to the domestic stage, um, I'm reminded of this widely cited 2021 Pew Research uh, Global Attitude Survey, which, I mean, I found those results really striking. Um, among advanced economies, Singaporeans were the only group to view China in a better light than the US and to prefer stronger economic ties with China over the US. Um, it's really quite anomalous given that, you know, only a median of 27% you know, across the 17 economies surveyed had a favorable opinion of China. But in Singapore, it's kind of the reverse. It's 64% of Singaporeans. So, you know, beyond Ukraine, I mean, why are some Singaporeans so strongly supportive of China? Is it ethnicity? Is it culture? Is it business? So, again, I think we have to disaggregate the, the groups that are tied in here. When you bring up the 
survey, one of the things I like to do is say, well, you know, we should also look at the ISIS State of Southeast Asia survey. It's a different survey, uh, but it, that looks at elites, right? It looks at business, political, policy, cultural, educational elites. Uh, and the Pew survey looks at the general public. And why I'm, I bring that up is because there's a divergence. When you look at the elite survey, there's a lot more skepticism towards the PRC. When you look at the general survey, there's a lot more affinity towards the PRC. And I think it's that difference is, is worth uh, considering a little bit. Now, I think ethnicity plays in a little bit of it, but I don't think it's completely it's completely uh, explained by ethnicity. So on the ethnicity side, just let me explain that to, to get it out of the way, is that one of the things that we find in Singapore is that there are people who feel strongly, uh, feel proud about uh, what they uh, think as Chinese culture. And there, there's a sense that okay, Chinese culture is speaking Mandarin uh, as opposed to other Sinophone languages. It's about taking reference to a place uh, like China culturally, right? Except that what happens there is that the PRC state, this is something that the PRC state and the, and the KMT state before the PRC state tended to do, which is they will try to, for mobilizational purposes, they will mix ethnicity together with their own politics, right? So this sort of a, Schema is also used by the CCP with its um, with its you know vast vast state resources. So for Singaporeans who are looking for that sense of identity, it's easy to sometimes to not realize some of these other dynamics that are going on, and it's also it's also tied in with the fact that in Singapore we don't have a strong sort of positive sense of who we are. Positive, not as in good or bad, but you know, we tend to say, okay, we are not this, we are not that, right? And so if there's lots of stuff that we're not, that comes that begs the question, who are we then? <laughs> so when you're searching when you're searching, this sort of ready-made narrative is something that's easy to to buy into. And uh, in addition to that, that's the I think some of the sort of ethnic stuff. There's also people of the so slightly older the Medeca generation who I feel still are quite pained by the experience of the uh, closure of Nanyang University, the uh, taking away of the uh, Chinese medium schools. And you see them also lament the loss of... Man when they say Chinese language, they actually mean Mandarin. They don't mean the other Sinophone or what we call dialects in Singapore. Um, for them, that's also a sort of cultural marker and they felt that they were badly treated. They were called Chinese chauvinists when they were not. And so this rise of China has become a source of pride for them. It's vindication, right? That what they were holding, holding on before is important. They're right. Um, and so they see this as the rise of um, China and the decline of, you know, the West and uh, what they see as the West and, you know, everything else that they saw were reasons for repressing them. There are people who obviously have uh, commercial interests. They may have a lot of business in China and they are cognizant, I'm sure, of the fact that when the PRC or the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is unhappy with the country's position, they will tend to punish businesses from that country. So I think that self-preservation, that self-interest plays, plays a certain role as well. So when you combine these sorts of things together with sometimes uh, there, are Sing there are also Singaporeans who I think are very unhappy with what I said earlier about the hypocrisy that they see coming up from the US and, and from Europe. So with these different kinds of views, I think 
it's easy to see why people would sort of have a more sanguine or even sympathetic uh, view towards the PRC as opposed to the US or, or any any other actor. Now, uh, I said earlier also, elites are a little bit different because I think in Singapore, there's a sort of general narrative that's going on that's, uh, that's a little bit managed. But for people who actually are dealing with some of the tensions and some of the frictions with the PRC, they perhaps see things in a little bit of a different light. They they tend to sort of see, okay, well, there, there are real questions that need to be resolved here. And also it's interesting to look at if we look compare elites across ASEAN countries. So for ASEAN countries generally, uh, those that have more friction with the PRC tend to be more skeptical, understandably. Um, and this applies to their publics too, if you look at the, the Pew survey more broadly. And Singapore, we actually have an out in the sense that we don't have some active ongoing territorial dispute uh, with, with the PRC, right? Um, and w- one last point about ethnicity, why I don't think it is just purely an ethnic uh, issue is because um, if you look some years back when we had uh, much more disquiet over immigration, right? Some of it also targeted uh, uh, PRC immigrants to Singapore. So it's not just an ethnicity thing. It's, it's quite a few different kind of complex uh, sentiments that are mixed in here, which we... I mean, I'm really glad you're doing this podcast because in Singapore, we tend not to unpack these kinds of things so much. And I think it's something that we need to do just to understand ourselves and where we stand and why we take the stands that we do. Right. And now, Prof, on that note, um, I mean, as someone working in media... I'm seeing some of these tensions play out as well you know, within mainstream media, vernacular media, um, in the coverage of the Ukraine crisis. So what role do you see the media playing and how should it strike this difficult balance? You know, in, in what areas you know, should it take a much clearer stand, right? For example, perhaps Singapore's national interests, right? We should be clear on that. Right. So I think what is important for the media in Singapore is to be evidence-based and to be transparent about the evidence. And also, if there are different views, that's fine. I think having more views is a good thing because it allows people to understand, look, there are people who don't see things the same thing, the same way that I do, right? Uh, one of the ways that debate tends to happen in Singapore is, I stand for the Singaporean view. You are anti-Singapore. You are pro-China. You are pro-US. Um, that sort of labeling is, I think, very unhelpful. But unfortunately, we see that a lot in Singapore. Um, we tend to do that. And I think on some level, it's, it sends a simple message. But on another, it tends to also encourage people to see, thing in, see things in rather simplistic and binary ways. So rather than to do that, I would say, okay, if there are different views, they, they should be re- reflected. That doesn't mean to say everything is equal. There are clearly views that are more that you know are more reasonable, well thought out, um, and perhaps are more supported by evidence, and others that are less. So, so do that, right? Say, okay, well, this is why these these people hold these views. This is the evidence that they have. Be transparent about it. Um, I think that can help people sort of understand. Okay, this is how we sort of sift through this very confusing environment that we have. So, if we're going to try to navigate this increasingly confusing environment, that explanation, that transparency, that um, use of evidence, I think, is very important. Of course, another is we have a clearer sense of what are the positive sense of civic values that we have in Singapore. Again, that's a, another sort of very large conversation that we haven't had. Um, but those having th- that, those similarity, uh, at least a common understanding of what those civic values are, we can debate over them, that's fine. But at least we know what frames the debate. Right. So, I mean, you've, you've touched on this somewhat, but, um, you know, this whole aspect of public communications, right, th- there's also this other aspect called education. 
And I think one of the, the challenges with trying to communicate foreign policy is that so many Singaporeans see it as this mysterious thing. And partly it's because there's not much publicly available information about the detailed considerations, you know, the closed-door negotiations that go on. And because of this, I get the sense that our national education has kind of suffered in this regard because people don't know what goes on beneath the tip of that publicly reported iceberg. And we don't have an intimate understanding of precisely what vulnerabilities we face. So when the government issues you know, warnings, for example, about foreign influence operations, people say, oh, the government is scaremongering. Um, in your opinion, is there anything we can do to tackle this at the root? I mean, obviously, there's POFMA, there's FICA, there's debunking fake news through fact-checkers, but these in some ways are kind of remedial or after-the-fact actions. Right. So I think in terms of media literacy and education, they are so, so important. It's not something that we are accustomed to doing very much uh, in, in Singapore. So we tend to have a practice, which is, okay, if something is told to us, we accept it. Even if we don't like it, we don't question it. Now, that's okay uh, in a place where you know, there's uh, more singularity in terms of the management of information. We're not in that world anymore. So that old approach, I think we need to rethink it a little bit. So people need to perhaps be encouraged to think critically. If I see this information presented to me, okay, um, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. How can I find out? Um, my first instinct wouldn't be like, oh, because it's my friend Grace sending it to me, so it has to be true and I have to believe Grace, right? Or, or vice versa. I say, oh, you know, um, uh, Prof. Chong said, you know, he's a professor, he has to be right. That doesn't happen uh, that, that way. You just say, okay, well, this is info. Can I try to corroborate it? So the example I raised earlier about the alleged Russian warning to Singapore, well, look it up. If I, okay, I mean, this is a bit facetious because I think, of course, people don't have that much time. But if you have time to, you know, go and have these passionate arguments with your friends about what's going on out there, then just take a little bit of time and see, okay, uh, if it's an official statement, can we find that out somewhere? Um, is is this backed by by evidence? Having that those sorts of habits, I think, are quite useful. Um, I think with information, with the transparency information, that can actually be a real tool to help um, dispel some of the misunderstandings. On the Singapore side, right, we have uh, documents and uh, treaties that we've signed uh, these things they can be found, you know, from from other from from our counterparts elsewhere that we sign things with, like say the Singapore U.S. Um, uh, strategic framework. You can you can find this from the U.S. State Department. So these things we can be open about. Uh, we can let people ha find them more easily, and it gives us a way of also putting our imprint of saying, okay, this is how um, Singapore we interpret these documents. Uh, you can look at them yourself. And I think the other point here is uh, with the fact-checking as well, that is a helpful tool. Uh, it's not something that is used that much in Singapore, but uh, that transparency will help with fact-checking. People can actually look at what uh, fact-checkers are referring to. And finally, um, the fact-checking needs to be even-handed, right? So if some authoritative figure you know, has political prominence, says something that may be out of context, right, or may not be fully true or even false. Well, the fact-checking should be even hand and say, well, no, there's no basis. We cannot find evidence for that. It's not about being accusatory. You're saying, can we find evidence to corroborate this claim? So that will get people to trust the fact-checking more and perhaps get into a habit of looking for uh, information rather than just to act on impulse and, and reaction. And on that final note on values, trust, you know, facts and independence, uh, thank you, Prof Chong, for coming on our show. 
Thank you so much, Grace. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for In Your Opinion, a new podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Grace Ho. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles or check out the opinion section of The Straits Times, we have links in our podcast text description below. What is your opinion on pro-China Singaporeans? Email me your thoughts at graceho@sph.com.sg. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.